Okay. So we're in this this space in this moment of time in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. I saw something very beautiful from the the Bala Sulam, whose name was Rav Ashlag. Bala Sulam was a was a very not well known Makubal Kabbalist. He wrote a Pirish on Zohar. And he, for many, many, many years, taught many, many uh, Talmidim about different things in Avodah Hashem, all of Alpi Kabbalah. He was actually good friends with Rav Kook. They lived roughly, roughly the same time. Rav Kook, I think, was a little older than him. But the Balasulam, the Balasulam has a very interesting twist. He has a very interesting insight. He says that there are 613 mitzvahs. 613 ways that we can connect to Hashem. 365 mitzvahs commandments, 248 things to abstain from. And he says, so Hashem's giving you a finite amount of ways you can connect to Him. 613 finite ways, add on seven more, the seven extra mitzvahs there are and then, of course, the plethora of insane amount of Minhagim and traditions over the over the generations. The, the Bala Sulam says that, but the number 613 is still 613. Picking your nose is not a mitzvah. So you don't get a mitzvah for picking your nose. Is it the good thing to do? Maybe, I don't know. You know, but but uh, arguably there are many, many things in life that are not mitzvahs. And therefore they're not necessarily um, ways of getting close to Hashem per se, that's not to say you can't elevate everything, you can, ele- you can elevate everything, but, if, but the Balasul says there's one mitzvah that you can do an infinite amount of times. You don't need to have um, a specific uh, mitzvah, you don't, I'm sorry, you don't have to do a specific behavior, you can be Mekayim one mitzvah millions and millions and millions of times. And that mitzvah he says is tshuva. Because no matter how many averas you do, you can do tshuva on those on those averas, and you can do tshuva on the tshuva on those averas. So the Balasulam says that for every mitzvah, there's a finite amount of ways to connect to Hashem. There's a finite amount of things you can do. But when it comes to tshuva, the Balasulam says the sky's the limit. There's no, there's no, there's nothing that holds you back. You can do tshuva ad nauseum. So he says that there's a Gemara that says that Sukkot is called Yom HaRishon, and the Torah is called Yom HaRishon the first day. The Gemara says, what do you mean the first day? It's the 15th of the month. So the Gemara says, no, it's Rishon L'Cheshvan Avonis. It's the first day of calculating sin. Whatever that means, there's, there's a lot of Sfarim, they talk about a lot of things, but somehow, somewhere, it seems to be simply that between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, there is a time that is not of Averas. It doesn't mean you get a free pass. It means that, generally speaking, people are so involved in doing um, so many things that there's so many mitzvahs pre- preparing for Yantiv that we, we don't really have a time to do Averas. And so Sukkot is like the, you know, like the time when we all chill out again, and then suddenly the, the, clock, the clock seems to start again. So the Balasulam says, if you just did tshuva on Yom Kippur, 
And we know that you, you get a kapara, your, your, your slate is wiped completely clean. So the Baal Sulam says that the days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot is called Yemei Tshuva, not days that you do Tshuva, but days that Tshuva is activated. And if Tshuva is activated, he says they're days, that these are days of complete infinity. The things that you can do, the things that you can accomplish, the thresholds you can cross during this time is ad nauseum. It's infinity. And then circus comes, and then somehow we, we kind of re-enter, again, we re-enter the atmosphere, we re-enter the, uh, the world, and the, the clock kind of starts ticking again. So there's, there's a lot we could say about that, but I, I, I want to talk about what circus is. It's called Mansum Chaseinu. It's called the days of our happiness. And so we have to talk about happiness. We have to talk about varying dimensions of happiness, especially, especially some, of, some of us that need to kind of um, juxtapose happiness with meaning or happiness with intensity or happiness with depth. We have to look at what happiness is because it's a very elusive kind of thing. It's one of those uh, things you try to put your finger on and then it, it kind of slips away. It's all different uh, uh, explanations of what happiness is, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to focus on specifically the happiness of post-Yom Kippur, a post-Yom Kippur happiness, if you will. And it's hard because sometimes psychologically we don't experience the happiness of post Yom Kippur. So let's for a moment, if we can't tap into it and we don't feel it, let's at least for a moment imagine, let's imagine together for a little bit, what it means to be happy after Yom Kippur, because that's really the depth of Sukkot. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that in a minute. So this year uh, was a, is a crazy year. Um, this whole coronavirus thing is, is nuts, and it's thrown everybody for a loop. And um, some of us end up in, in all kinds of strange places with all kinds of things that we, we didn't necessarily imagine, like in a dark cabin on a lake somewhere for the Holy Yom Kippur. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a strange, there's a lot of strange things that are going on. So one of the strange things that happened to me was that I, I, the shul that I, that I'm a part of, our shul, Eish Kodesh, had four different minyanim. And before Ne'ila this year, um, I was asked to, to, to give the, I guess, the, pre, the pre-game show, um, the, the drasha before Ne'ila. And as the quintessential therapist, I decided to share um, a thought that I had. And the thought, the thought simply goes like this. There's a, there's a medrash that says, Yafa sichasan shal avde avos, I think metairase shal banehem. Yafa sichasan shal avde avos means that the, 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 the idle talk, the chatter, the simple conversations of the servants of our avos are more significant and more important and more beautiful than the Torah that the children of the Avos talk about. That's a very cryptic message. What does that mean? So the, the Medrash says, how do we know that? How do we know that the, that the conversations that the, that the servants of the Avos have had, how do we know that they're important? 
So the Gemara says, because you see, there's a story in the Torah that, that, uh, that happened that seems to have no real value. And it seems to be an innocuous thing that has no meaning. And what's it doing there? Elamai, the Torah tells, the Medrash says, the Torah is telling us this specific story for a purpose in order to, sh- in order to show us the beauty of how the servants of our forefathers were. What's that story? The story is of Eliezer. When Eliezer went to, to, talk, to meet Rivka and to bring Rivka back as a wife for Yitzchak, so he meets with Basul and Lavan. Eliezer meets with Basul and Lavan, and Basul and Lavan sit together with him and they negotiate. And as a good host, they throw, they throw a, big, a big feast. And as they're about to start eating, Eliezer says, wait, before we, we sit down to eat, I just want to tell you a little bit about, I want to give you context why I'm here. And he starts to tell them about Avram and Sarah and where they come from and where they live and who they are, what they do. And then they had a son and then he's looking for a, 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 um, a, a, a for a son. And he's the one who's doing it. And this, this is what he said to his master. This is what Avram said. This is what Avram didn't say. And so the measure says, like, it's a very strange thing. What do we have to know the details of this? Like, it doesn't, the Torah doesn't tell you every time that Moshe Rabbeinu took a drink or every time that, uh, you know, Aaron Akayim's wife yelled at him. The Torah doesn't tell you these kinds of things. What, what is this conversation that took place between Eliezer and um, Basul and Lavan? So the measure says, you see that there's something beautiful about the conversations of the Avde Avos of the, the servants of our fathers that the Torah mentioned it. And you don't see really much Torah that comes out of the children of the Avos. There's no recorded, you know, conversations between Yitzchak and Avram about deep, you know, theological, mystical things. There's no Torah that's discussed there, but the Torah does record the conversations that the servant of Avram had. So the Swas Emes asks, but, but what is the significance? I mean, the, the Medrash doesn't explain what is the significance of this conversation that Eliezer has with Basul and Lavan. So the Svasemis says that if you look at Rashi, at one point, Rashi says that Eliezer says to Basul and Lavan, the recorded conversation, he says, maybe the, maybe the he said, I said to my master, Eliezer says to Basul and Lavan, I said to Avram, Ulai, maybe ha, the, the woman that won't want to come with me. Maybe she won't want to come with me. What should I do? So on that Pusik, Rashi says that the word Ulai in the Pusik, maybe, is spelled without a vav. That means that you can read the words, you could read the word Ulai, maybe the woman won't want to come as a lie to me, meaning Rashi says, you see a remez from here that Eliezer wanted his own daughter to marry Yitzchak and that he had a conversation with Avram about his own, his own daughter marrying Yitzchak. And Avram told him, no, no, I, you, I don't want my daughter, my son to marry your daughter. And so Eliezer was telling Basul and Lavan or hinting to Basul and Lavan that he wanted uh, Yitzchak for his own daughter. So the Sasemes uh, uh, says this is not simply like trying to make Basul and Lavan recognize how beautiful Yitzchak is or how great Yitzchak is. That wasn't the point of Eliezer telling them 
that hint. The Svasema says one liner. He says that Eliezer needed to speak out his own biases, his own agenda, his own personal need for uh, wanting Yitzchak to marry his own daughter. And Eliezer spoke it out because he, he wanted to make sure for himself, not for Basul and Lavan. This conversation, the Svasema says, had nothing to do with Basul and Lavan. This was simply a preparation because he was about to enter negotiations and he wanted to be authentically clear about himself that he knows where his biases are, where his agendas are, where his blind spots are, and he needed to speak it out for himself so that he himself would have the clarity and would have the strength of character to do what he needed to do in the right way. In other words, the Medrash says that what did Eliezer do? Eliezer spoke out for himself. He, he, he reviewed all of the different aspects of this story to create a context for himself to be authentic and true and healthy and clear in whatever it was he was going to do. Which means that if you go back to the Medrash and you, and you look at the Medrash, how beautiful it is, the conversations of the servants of our fathers. What does that mean? It means that the Medrash is teaching us, if you, if you learn, if you understand what this Fasemis is saying, if this is, what, if this is what Eliezer is doing in all of this repetition, then what the Medrash means is that the Torah says there's something beautiful about speaking out your own blind spots, your own negativity, your own biases, your own agendas. Speak it out. Get it out of your system. Get clarity about your own agenda. And so I connected that in my, in my speech right before Ne'ilah to say that everything we do and all the intensity and all the things that we've been taught about what you're supposed to do on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, all the guilt that we have, all of the shame that we carry, all of that stuff, <sighs> Hashem wants us to simply speak it out. In other words, if we wanted to twist the whole, the whole davening and all of the slichus that we say and all of the Yom Kippur davening that we say, if we want to twist the whole thing on its head, what we would say is that before you get to tshuva, before you get to tshuva, before you get to reconnect to God, you need to speak out all of the inner critic. In other words... How do I know when I say the words, blah, 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 whatever it was. How do I know if what I'm saying is, Hashem, I truly feel bad that I did this. Please forgive me. Or I am saying, I feel terrible. I have a conscience. I have a guilty conscience that I did A, B, and C, and it doesn't, I don't like that. I, I don't like it. I'm disappointed in myself. I feel badly about myself. How do I make the, the, the distinction between my inner critic, my guilt and shame, and tshuva. How do I make the distinction between the two of it, the two of the, the two of those things? And so I think, based on this Svas MS, that all of Elul and all of the tshuva and all the fiery speeches we hear and all the negative, 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 negative that we we are so accustomed to hearing about the Yam Naraim, all of it is 
I mean, we don't need any more of it. I think for the rest of history, we don't need any more of it. Our generations have borne the weight of what, it, of what you know, hostility could look like in Judaism. So we're finished really with that. So what is it all about? What are we doing with all of it? We're simply letting go. We're speaking out. We're saying to Hashem, Hashem, there's a part of me that beats myself up about this. There's a part of me that beats myself up about this. There's a part of me that beats myself about this. Every Hashemnu and every Alchet and every word of Slicha and every time we cry out to Hashem, we're saying to Hashem, Hashem, I don't like this about me. I don't like this about me. I don't like this about me. And I'm speaking it all out like Eliezer did in order to get clarity that I have an agenda, I have a bias, I have a shame that I carry in me, and I don't like it, and I hate it, and I want to get it out of my system. The Gemara tells us, Yesh Yesh It's possible to connect to God, to acquire God in one split second. And so my thought was that the last hour of the day, the Svarim say this, what does it mean that a person can, can, can buy God in one hour? Ne'ilah. And during the time of Ne'ilah, we have the capacity that's one hour. It generally takes about one hour. And you can, you can buy God in that hour. In other words, when, when we show up to Ne'ilah, the job is, the test is, the, the responsibility is, could you let go of all the guilt and the shame that kills you? Can you let go of all the toxicity and all the disappointment and all the negativity and all of the things that need to be healed? Can you let go of all of it? Can you let go of all the pain? Can you let go of all the suffering? Can you let go of all that is negative about yourself in this world? Because if you can, then you're left with nothing but you and God. You're left with nothing but you and God. It's not that God is persecutory. It's the opposite. It's that persecution has somehow been hijacked in, I'm sorry, God has been somehow, somehow been hijacked in persecu persecution's name. Of course, God makes us feel negative things, of course. And that's a great big theological and philosophical question. But my avaida, my, my job is, can I get to the point where I could let go of all the shame. No religious obligations carry shame. Somebody posted in the chat. Sometimes religious obligations carry shame. No religious obligations carry shame. Shame is found nowhere in the Torah. There's no mitzvah of shame. There's no even hint to shame in the Torah. There's absolutely nothing about religious life that carries shame. Human beings carry shame. Cultures create shame different misunderstandings of how halacha work create shame, that's for sure. But religion, Yiddishkeit, God does not carry shame. Shame is the anti-God. It's, it's, it's what we would call the Sahara. So if we've been able to let go, if we can get to that point that we could let go of all that plagues us, all that bothers us, all that hurts us, whether it's others who have hurt us, or it's our conscience that hurts us, or it's God that hurts us. The question is, can we let go of it? The question is, can we let go of it? Can I let go of it and be left instead with my own 
vulnerability, my own frailty, my own shyness, my own tentativeness, my own little inner child? Can I be with myself? And here I want to talk about something specific because as I've said many times, happiness, simcha, is being with myself. It's simcha is epic, E-P-I-C. E-P-I-C stands for everything put into context. Everything put into context, epic. That's what, that's what epic is. When everything is put into context, that means for myself, Everything about me is aligned and tuned. In those moments where I feel like I'm completely myself, my inner world, my outer world, tofu kabara, everything is connected, everything just feels right. That's what happiness is. Happiness is like the pieces of the puzzle all fit together. Those moments in our lives where we have that, that's what, that's what, that's what simcha is. So if I can let go of all the things that hurt me and all the things that disappoint me, what I'm left with is that sense of vulnerability, that sense of openness to experience, that sense of beauty. The conversation that our, the avde avos, the servants of our avos means, when I feel like I'm connecting to God through being an Eved Hashem, which sometimes feels to me like I'm a slave, which sometimes feels to me as being an Eved Hashem, it sometimes feels like I am trapped. I sometimes feel like I have shame, like I'm nothing, I'm not worth anything in the eyes of God. That's what it means to be an Eved Hashem. When I feel like I am an Eved of God, it is Yafa, it is beautiful, it is good for me to speak out all that pains me, all that hurts me. And in a certain way, that's even greater than Tyra. Because the banim, the banim of the avos, the children of the avos, they have Torah. But if I can speak out, if I can speak out of my, from myself, from the place of being an Eved Hashem, which is not the same Adrega of being a son, but being an Eved, being a servant, feeling low, feeling down, if I could speak out and I could raise myself up out of the, the darkness of being an Eved, if I can make it to that place, then then I've, I've just done what's called tshuva. That's what tshuva is. Tshuva is the ability to stop feeling shame. Tshuva is the ability to realign myself with who I am, what I am, and of course, between me and, and God and between me and others. In those three categories. Ben Adam la'atzmei, ben Adam la'chaveri, ben Adam la'makom. So, that, of course, is all a hakdama, an introduction to what we talk about when we talk about entering sukkahs. I want to talk about gratitude, but we'll do that. We'll do that. Hopefully, I won't forget. We'll do that in a few minutes. What does it mean that we... we we go from Yom Kippur into Sukkot. What's the significance? They, they, in the Torah, they have nothing to do with each other. There's no real connection between the two. But because for thousands of years, we have celebrated these Yom Tavim, we have to be able to see 
the flow and the connection. There's a somewhat of a Kabbalistic Indian. It's, it's a basic thing, we, we can all understand on the most basic level, that everything in life has what's called kalim and iris. Everything has containers and inner light, inner beauty. So that if I want to, if I want to experience something that's beautiful, I need to have the container that contains the beauty. If I don't have containers that contain beauty or contain love or contain or that contain light, then one of two things are gonna happen. Either I'm gonna have a flash of inspiration and then I won't be able to hold on to it and the or will fly away, or the or will shatter me. It'll be too much, I won't be able to contain it. I'll go out of my mind, or it'll break me. So we need to have Kalim and, and Ores and light. What are Kalim? Kalim are, Kalim are what in, in the Svarim are called Midos, like working on yourself, developing capacity. That's what Kalim are, having the capacity to make something work. When you sit in a room, the walls of the room and the floor of the room are called the Kalim of the room. And what goes on inside the room is called the R of the room. So that's Kalim and Iris. Now, most of our lives, what we do is we spend time trying to build our Kalim. We spend time trying to have the capacity to accept God's light. So let's, 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 take, let's take an example. Let's say I am feeling very stressed and I want to experience a little bit of godliness, a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of spirituality. And so the, the hip thing to do now is to do some kind of mindful meditation. And so I clear away my schedule, I, I clear away the space or I, I go somewhere that's, uh, that's calming and I sit down and I either put on some kind of mindfulness meditation or I meditate for myself. And I slowly start to allow myself to let go of all the thoughts that I have in my mind. And I work to get to a point that I'm able to receive the aura, the beauty of the moment. So we would say that all the work that goes into clearing my mind and getting myself to be able to accept the aura of Hashem, all those things are called kalim. And then receiving the R of Hashem is called R. It's called light. Okay? Kalim and R. The reason why Kabbalah is uh, something that is pushed away and is, is, is considered to be hidden, or is also, at least in the, in the, in the Mishnayis, is Ben Arba and Labina, you're not supposed to really learn much Kabbalah before you hit 40. The reason for that is because Kabbalah is or, it's all light. You can't learn it from a place of trying to understand the technicalities of it. That's not the point of it. The point is it's supposed to, it's supposed to, you're supposed to learn it experientially. It's supposed to get seeped into the essence of who you are. It's supposed to move you. It's supposed to transform you. It's supposed to tickle your, your soul. And, it's, and you're supposed to feel it. You're supposed to learn it experientially. That's called Ur. You need to have enough Kalim to do that. You need to have enough 
uh, intellectual understanding, intellectual fortitude, emotional fortitude. You need to have kalim to be able to contain the R of Pneumia Satira. Halacha. The halacha is called the kalim. The Tameha mitzvahs, the purpose of the mitzvahs is called the R of the mitzvah. There's the right, there's a guf, that's the guf is the kalim. And then there's the neshama, there's the inner experience of it. That's the R. Okay, that's the, the relationship between kalim and R. So most of our lives we spend building kalim. That's what most of what we do. This is called, the world is called the world of lamaisa, of behavior, chal, the, the mundane. Most of mundanity is about building for the sake of something. It's a means to an end. The Gemara says, Misha Tarach Be'erev Shabbos, Yochel B'Shabbos. Whoever works on Erev Shabbos will have what to eat on Shabbos. Or, meaning, another way of saying it is, you need to work for the six days of the week in order to get to Shabbos. And you need to recognize that the life is really all about Shabbos. But you can't have Shabbos if you don't have the six days of the week. So you need to spend your time working out all the different kinks and all the different practical things you need to do in order to get to Shabbos. Kalim. This is a world of Kalim. We have one day of Shabbos that's Ur, and the rest of the week is called Kalim. It doesn't mean we don't have Ur during the week. It means that everything, everything about the, the six days of the week is about vessels, about containers. So the whole year, we spend all of our time working on the Kalim, working on the technical details of ourselves in order to receive the Ur of Hashem. And it comes, Elul, Anila Doidi Vidoidi Li. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Hashem says, I'm coming out into the field. I'm coming down into this world to be with you. I'm going to help you work on your Kalim. Hashem says, I'm going to help you work yourself out. I'm going to be with you while you go through all of the slichas and all of the cheshman and nefesh and all the, all the times that you clapped al I'm with you. All of the ashamnus and the bagadnus, all the negative stuff that you went through, all of that purging of the negativity, I want you to know I'm there helping you. I'm there with you doing this. Until we hit that moment on Yom Kippur, where we've broken the world of Kalem, and we enter the world of Ur. And there's this, like, really trippy and deep kind of thing that happens in that moment. And that is, I dig into myself, and I dig deeper and deeper and deeper until I get to the place that's called Neshama. I get to the place of my soul. I get to the place where me and Hashem are Echad. Shema Yisrael Hashem Lekein Hashem Echad. It's echad, we're all one, we're connected now completely. And now we're ready to receive Hashem's ur. And automatically something, something shifts, something changes. Where I felt that everything beforehand was all about me doing for God, the Svarim explain, on Rosh Hashanah, we are Mamlech Hashem King, Hashem is our King. We say we live our whole life for God, right? Six days of the week is for Shabbos. Kal Yisrael is for God. We spend all of our time building our kalim for the sake of Ur. Comes Yom Kippur, and Hashem says, now it's my turn to be Mamlech you. Now I want you to know something. You spent all of your time thinking about me. I want you to know that all of the time I do, all the things I do, I spend all of my time thinking about you, 
Hashem says. And so we go through this day of Yom Kippur where Hashem doesn't just wipe our slate clean. He doesn't just give us the experience of having purged all of the shame away from ourselves. He doesn't just allow us to be vulnerable. But Hashem says, now it's my turn to show you what I do all year. Hashem says, now I want you to know that I sit with you all year round, and I sit wondering about you. And I, Hashem says, build my kalim for your R. And so we go into a sukkah on sukkahs, we walk into God's kalim. Now, Hashem has opened up the door and he said, you, Klal Yisrael, is the R, and I'm the Kali. The whole six days of of the whole six days of the week, we're thinking about Shabbos. The whole, the whole year, we're thinking about God. Comes Yom Kippur, Hashem unties everything, and suddenly everything gets flipped around. And Hashem says, "I want you to know that you are my R. You are my R." There's only one thing I want from God. I want to sit in God's house my whole life. That means I want to experience Hashem. I want to experience you as having spent all of your year working on your kalim to receive my or. I want to be a guest in your house. I don't want to be the other way around. The whole time we spend Veshachanti Vesaycham, Hashem says, I want to live with you. I want to be a guest in your house. And we spend all of our time working our the kinks out. How do we get God into our lives? How do we get God into our lives? We go to Shiurim and we do all kinds of things to try to get God into our lives, God into our lives. Comes Yom Kippur and Hashem says, now I want to get you into my house. Now I want you to be a guest in my house. I want you to be my or. I want you to be my beauty. I want you to be the object of my desire, of my interest. And so we go into Hashem's sukkah. We go into the, the sukkah, which is the four worlds of the sukkah, is corresponding to our own neshamas. Whereas the neshamas is usually contained inside the guf, on Yom Kippur, the guf is contained inside the neshama. That's why we, we, don't, we don't do any kind of physical uh, enjoyment over Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur, we don't need to eat. We don't need the physicality. We have the soul. The soul is running the show. So, of course, our bodies will, will have whatever sensations they have. But the, the idea behind all the inuyim of all of the things that we don't do on, on, on Yom Kippur is, is because we don't need those things. The soul's running the show. So Hashem says, now the soul's running the show. Now the part of you that connects to me completely, that part's uh, uh, running things. The guf's not running the neshama, the neshama's running the guf. And if that's the case, then when I look into this world, the most majestic and grandiose thing that I see, Hashem says, is you. <clears throat> so that's the, the uh, maybe it's not so basic. But that's the beginning of understanding what Sukkot is. Sukkot is called Zman Simchasenu. It's the time of happiness because it's the one time a year that Hashem flips the script on us. And He says, I want you to be a guest in my house. I want to be the Kalim of your Ur because you, 
Claudia Yisrael, if you could only get out of your own, your own heads, you can only get out of the smallness of getting so caught up in all the minutia and the details of the things that you have in your life. I want you to remember, Hashem says, that you are the object of my love. Wherever I go in the world, Hashem says, whatever I'm busy doing, whichever country I'm in the middle of, of putting through a civil war and whichever wildfire I'm doing, whichever you know, political race I'm running and whichever my gaifa plague that I'm running, whatever I'm doing in the world, Hashem says, my eyes are constantly on you. Cloud Yisrael, my people, my beloved. And so on Sukkot, if we can, in whatever way we can, we have the capacity to tune into feeling that we are the object of God's desire. That Hashem's or is me. The delight that Hashem has in the world is me. And can I experience that? Can I taste that? Can I feel that in my bones? Can I allow myself to feel that in my bones? There are, of course, many other aspects to that. Because <clears throat> to allow myself to feel that I am the or in Hashem's kalim, to allow myself to feel that I'm a guest in God's house, there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability. There's a tremendous amount of fear that comes along with that. Because to be so uh, sought after by, by God is anywhere from cringy, cringeworthy, to downright, downright scary. I mean, it's scary. It's scary to allow that feeling in. It's a pachad. In a certain way, the Svarim explain that the pachad of din is the pachad of love. It's the fear that comes along with, with being so loved. It's just a scary thing that there's no real reason why it's not even like a fear of being found out to be a fraud or being a failure it's not really what it is it's simply just it it's it's scary to be loved to feel that somebody wants you or that god wants you to such a degree so we have different things over the course of of circus we have the ushpizen the ushpizen come to try to kind of make it a little bit more palatable for us the ushpizen come in a way where every night Every night, by the way, all seven Ushpizen come, if, 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 you, if you know that, if you pay attention to, to the words of what we say. Every night, all the Ushpizen come. It's just each night, there's another one that kind of sits at the head of the table. And we also take a Lulav, an Esrig, also basic, basic shot, the number seven. We take one Lulav and one Esrig and the Hadassim and the Aravas, and we shake it. And all of that shaking of the lulav is a way of mitigating the love that Hashem has for me. It's all about trying to somehow filter it in to my own system so that it becomes a part of me, so that it doesn't just explode and kill me, or we don't just kind of like be inspired and let it go. The whole shaking of lulav and esrig is, I mean, these are, these are kind of deep, deep concepts, but the idea of it is to, you know, to say this to a group of therapists, 
It's a way of somatically grounding and internalizing. You shake a lulav, you shake it in, you take seven things, you shake it in seven directions. All of these things have to do with trying to imbibe and ingrain and ingest and concretize what it means that I am a guest in Hashem's house, that Hashem loves me with such an unbelievably and undying uh, um, uh, intensity. And we get to a point, we get to a point on Shemini Atzeres. And the point on Shemini Atzeres is that by the time we get to Shemini Atzeres, we have hopefully ingested all of this love. We've concretized it somehow. We've made it ours. And then we're capable technically of living the rest of our life until next year when the cycle repeats itself. This is the basic Hakdama, but I, I, want to, I want to make this much more palatable for us and talk about something specific that I know for myself I've been working on, and I think it's maybe, maybe other people are ready to work on this, maybe not, maybe this will just be food for thought. But if we stay away for a minute from trauma and from healing and darkness, and we look simply into our basic lives, we look at stress. We look at what happens when we have stress. Stress, not shame, but stress. Stress, it's similar to shame. Maybe it's time for, for a, different, a, different, uh, a different schmooze. Stress is getting caught up in all the busyness that I have in my life, but it's not really about busyness. Stress is anxiety. Stress is a form of anxiety. It's about all of the things that get wrapped up and all the stories we have that we tell ourselves about the things we need to product, be, be productive with. Stress essentially is one of those things that we, we can't really turn off. I mean, we try. That's, that's, what, that's what it means to become a master at life. But stress is one of those things that literally just suffocate us. We get busy, we get busy, and we get busy, and we get busy, and we just keep getting busy until we need to either um, you know, force ourselves to leave and escape, take a break, um, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were to ask me what I think for myself, but also I think, I think in general in the world, the one thing that stress never allows us to do, and I think this is maybe one of the biggest killers of life, what stress does not allow us to do is, stress does not allow us to appreciate things. That's what stress does. It essentially cuts off our capacity, our capacity to appreciate things. To appreciate things means to enjoy to simply enjoy. I know that I'm, I uh, came home, I started working on my sukkah at about 6.15 tonight. I mean, I had done some before, but put up the lights and the schach and the boards. I started at 6.15. I thought it would take me about two hours. At about 9.40, I stopped. I still have a bunch of, you know, two by four sitting outside in the, uh, in the front lawn where the, where the barbecue pit usually is. And, um, in that, in that 20 minutes, I 
I looked at my phone. I um, tried to figure out what I want to eat for supper because I didn't eat supper yet. Um, I tried to be present for my wife and kids for a little bit. I had to set up the computer. I wasn't sure what I, what I wanted to talk about tonight. All of these things. And I'm still sitting, having taken like, you know, three or four bites of, of whatever uh, food I'm going to eat. That means that essentially, in those 20 minutes, with all the things that I've done, the degree to which I'm, I was stressed and feeling the pressure of what was going on is the degree to which I did not enjoy any of those things that I, that I did in those 20 minutes. I didn't enjoy the little nuances of my wife and kids. I did not enjoy the food that I ate. I did not enjoy whatever it was I was doing on my phone, which there was actually some enjoyable stuff there. A friend of mine I hadn't I haven't spoken to in a while, texted me some random thing. It was funny. I could not enjoy any of it because my time management and my busyness and whatever, whatever the story was, we can all identify with this in some way. Whatever stress I had means I couldn't enjoy. <clears throat> Appreciation comes when I'm able to decrease stress. Appreciation, of course, is the, the only way a person can be makar tov. You know, it's interesting, we, we, we call makar tov, we call gratitude to be makar tov. Makar tov does not mean to express gratitude. To be makar tov means to recognize the good. We don't recognize good. We experience good. Experiencing good means to enjoy something. To enjoy. Gratitude as a religious obligation to say thank you to Hashem requires us to actually enjoy something. Because if I just mumble through a... a a gratitude, something that I'm grateful for. I mean, that's nice. It's a good thing to do. There's certainly parts of davening that talk all about gratitude. That's for sure. That's a good thing. But gratitude, in order for me to be grateful, I have to be able to appreciate. In order for me to appreciate, I have to be able to experience joy. And in order for me to experience joy, I have to let go of stress, pressure, fear, anxiety, and all the stuff, the busyness that we have in life. There's a, there's a fascinating thing about sukkahs, about going into God's house, so to speak. Say, Medir's keva, go out of your normal kvias, go out of your normal structure, go out of your normalcy, what is permanent for you, go out of your permanence, and go into your diras arai, go into, your, into this transient, strange, uh, building that we don't even know if it represents, you know, some mystical Ananiya covered clouds, or if it means some real, you know, like we're remembering some real actual huts that were built. But you would think that if you're going to go into God's house, if you're going into God's house, you want to go into the, into this major majestic palace, like maybe to celebrate Sukkot, you know, we should, we should just have a base of Mikdash. And if you don't have a base of Mikdash, maybe it should be that everybody should go into shul. 
and camp out in shul. I mean, the shul is like the, the main of a base amikdash. You would think that if you're going into God's house, you should go into an even more magnificent building than your house. We should we should have like other religions have. We should have certain temples that we only use once or twice a year for the sake of celebrating God's house and being in God's house. And Hashem says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go into a diras arai. I want you to leave the normal stressors of your life. Because at this time in life, Hashem says, I want you to taste enjoyment. And so go into this rough, go into this little tent that you're going to build. Go into a sukkah. Go into this not so sturdy thing. And when you're there, I want you to create noy sukkah. I want you to decorate it. I want you to spend time making it beautiful because I want you to enjoy. Leave your stress, go into something that's arai, that's like, that's like it's, it's temporary. Temporariness always means novelty. It always means a certain element of excitement and, and anticipation of something that's not really, you know, it's not part of the normal. It's about what's the depth of that? The depth of that is to go back to vulnerability. I mean, that's what it means to live with vulnerability. When we, when we live with vulnerability, everything's exciting. Everything's new. Everything's possible. Everything's beautiful. Say, Medeiros Keva, go out from your, um, from your normalcy and go into a state of vulnerability. Go into a state where everything is majestic again. And Hashem says, I want you to taste and I want you to feel and I want you to experience the majesty again, the beauty again. Leave the stressors, leave the busyness, leave the normalcy. And so to bring it all the way back to the beginning of this, of this little meditation on Sukkot, if I could let go of all the things that stress me out, if I could let go of all the, the, the shame that I carry, and even the disappointment, and of course, we have charata. Charata is part of tshuva. We have, we have guilt. Sure, we have guilt. Of course we do. And even when we don't, the Torah tells us in certain ways, we should experience disappointment, not shame, disappointment. But Hashem says in Yom Kippur, you know, even with those averes that you've done, even with those sins that you've done, do tshuva. Come back to me. Reconnect to me. Let go. Don't identify yourself with everything that's wrong with you. I, I don't want that. That Those things are not real. They're not really who you are. They're not the essence of what I see when I look at you. I don't see the negative stuff. I don't see the scars. I see the beauty. I don't see the negativity. I see the beauty. And so on Yom Kippur, every year, Hashem literally reaches deep down into our souls, and He pulls like a sock he turns us inside out, or maybe right side in, and he allows us to taste ourselves without any of the pressures and the stress to be better, to do better, to want more, to be more, to be more productive, to get more. Hashem says, no, 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 no. You want to make Kabbalahs on yourself, that's fine. The need of making Kabbalahs is also a whole nother sheer. It's a whole sheer to talk about what Kabbalahs mean and what they have to do with tshuva. Essentially, at the end of the day, 
to make a Kabbalah of something small on myself is, is not because I want to show God that I want to be better. That's not the purpose of Kabbalah. The, the purpose of Kabbalah is to say to myself, I recognize that every little thing about me matters because I matter. And so everything matters. It's my, it's my life. And everything about my life is beautiful. And so if I make a Kabbalah on myself to, to daven Elena from a sitter, that means that, yeah, that's beautiful. Not because Elena from a sitter is such an amazing thing, but because for me, it's something, it's something, it's anything. It's something delicate. It's something beautiful. It's something nuanced. It's something about me because everything about me matters. That's the Indian of making Kabbalahs. But the point of Yom Kippur is not about Kabbalahs. The point of Tshuva is not about Kabbalahs. The point of Tshuva is for us to reconnect to Hashem in the most vulnerable way and for us to taste what it's like when Hashem looks at me and Hashem sees me and for me to enjoy those eyes on me, for me to enjoy seeing, seeing Hashem's beating heart and, and that deeper breath that he experiences when he looks at me, that excitement he has when he looks at me, the awe he has when he looks at me, for me to be able to experience that, for me to let my guard down enough, let the stress down enough, let the busyness down enough, let the disappointment and the shame down enough for me to taste and enjoy the beauty of what I am, the beauty of who I am, the beauty of what I do have in my life, the beauty of all the things that Hashem sees in me and wants of me. Sukkot is man simchasenu. It's the time of simcha. It's the time of, of experiencing simcha. It's a time of enjoyment. It's the time of being the best we can be to ourselves and to others and to God and to allow the chiropractic experience of Yom Kippur <clears throat> to feel our spiritual spines realigned with itself in perfect harmony and balance. And so our bracha, our hope, our tila, I'm speaking for everybody now, is that Hashem brings us back to that place, that Beis HaMikdash, that place where everything is perfect again. With Kal Yisrael being the crown of Hashem and the heart of Hashem, and Hashem being the crown of our lives and the heart of our lives, in that most majestic union that takes place between the divine and the mundane, between God and man. And may we, we be zeich of this sukkah, not just to taste a little bit of what it's like to sit in Hashem's house and a little bit of what it's like with Mashiach in the Beis HaMikdash, but we should taste Mashiach mamish. And that the sukkah is David Hanayfelas, the, the, the sukkah of David, which is called falling, it's in a state of falling, that that sukkah is not falling anymore, but that that sukkah is re, uh, re-established. And that we can sit in God's house and God can sit in our house and together the host and the guest in both, in both directions can be realigned and reperfected. And with that, I wish everybody a very, very authentically and beautiful and vulnerable Simchas Sukkis.